I want to learn about what's important to you. Um, I want to learn what your pain points are, especially if you've used a cap intro specialist in the past. What happened? What went wrong? How can I address that? Thank you so much for tuning into Journey with Christian D. Evans Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Christian D. Evans. And guys, we have a very special guest on today. He's a dynamic alternative investment lawyer and private placement consultant. He thrives in the global private markets as a partner at Fisher Royals LLP and CEO of Arch Investments. He expertly navigates the challenges faced by the investment community. We're going to be talking about a lot about that today with an innovative mindset. He combines legal expertise and capital introductions and influence and strategies to fuel success in niche alternative investments. Please welcome my next guest, the one and only CEO of Arch Investments, Jamil French. How are you doing today, Jamil? Hi, Christian. I'm great. Thanks so much for the opportunity to speak to your audience. Man, I'm looking forward to this conversation. And one of the things that I, I found interesting about your kind of aspect is you have not only law experience, but also alternative investing experience. Yes. I found very interesting because when you're working with these family offices and high net worth and ultra high net worth, naturally they're looking at, to deploying capital and facilitating their whole portfolio. So first of all, Jamil, when you were a law, you know, being in law, what made you decide to get into this vertical as well and both and run both vehicles and how has that been effective? Sure, no, it, it's a great question. And, you know, I found that at a certain part of my career, I was looking for something more than, than what I was currently doing. I, you know, I had been a transactional lawyer my entire career at that point, working on Wall Street and um, working in um, investment banks and with law firms and even in-house at a hedge fund. Um, but it wasn't until I found myself in Orlando working for a large institutional firm um, that I discovered that there was something more that I wanted to be. And it actually came down to an opportunity that slipped through the cracks um, to join um, a private equity firm in New York in-house. Um, and I put a lot of work and blood, sweat and tears into ingratiating myself with the principal and his extended family. And when it came down to talk compensation, uh, I, I was quickly reminded that I was just a lawyer and that my compensation would be reflective of that. And so it was definitely a letdown. But Christian, what it taught me was that, um, you know, unless I made some changes and some additions into my tool belt, I was always going to be just a lawyer to a lot of folks in this world. And that if I wanted to um, get into certain rooms that I couldn't as a lawyer, if I wanted to have compensation that reflected what a principal gets in some of these deals, that I was going to have to expand what I do and, and reframe how people see me. And that's when I began my journey towards uh, becoming a private placement agent and combining that with the legal work that I do. Which I found so interesting. That's one of the reasons why I want to have you on a podcast because I've had some that just focus on legal aspect, which is cool. But you kind of have uh, gravitate toward both. Yeah. Now, when you're working with your clients, naturally they're gonna you, they come to you in regards to legal purposes and legal questions. Um, what is that? How do you how do you establish that uh, kind of comfortable bridge to talking about other alternative investing? Because I would imagine some of these in individuals they're looking at building, you know very specific um, you know, trust or you know other questions about navigating their wealth etc cetera, etc cetera. and I would imagine they that's kind of an easy evolution but what how do you bridge that gap to talk about some of the the deal flow uh, and the alternate investments that you do have access to sure sure well as you can imagine both of those worlds are very cross-pollinating um, they play in the same sandbox so to speak 
So it's, it's very easy to get cross referrals from one side of the business to the other. But I think you're right in highlighting that it can be a bit challenging and especially from a, a legal ethics point of view, you know, I have to be very careful about how I work with clients and how I get compensated from clients. And so I, I have made a choice to um, ask folks to kind of choose their own adventure when we speak. And if they would like more legal work, then I have a platform for that. And if they would like um, more cap intro work, I have a different platform for that. And so I, I do not work uh, with, this, with one client doing the same types of work, both types of work. It's just a little too um, tricky. And so I think most clients respect that because they do want your full attention and your full, you know, um, uh, your, your full attention and your, and your full care on, on what they're doing. Um, but, you know, I, in either case, I think folks appreciate that I bring, you know, a legal mindset to the cap rental work that I do. And that I also bring a marketing IR and fundraising aspect to the legal clients that I serve. It, um, even if I'm only representing them on one side of the business or other, um, I think they really do appreciate that someone's coming to the table who understands the deals, um, who's not going to uh, make them any trickier or harder than they have to be, um, and who could help them kind of think through some things from a different perspective that they're perhaps not getting elsewhere. Yeah, that makes sense. And it sounds like you're a connector in, in both ways, right? For those that are looking to deploy capital into maybe, you know, certain kind of, you know, investment deal flow. And then as well as those that you're connecting with in regards to founders that are looking for capital. So it's really nice. I'm curious, how do you structure that, those conversations, those dialogues in regards to who do you work with? First question, who do you work with? Uh, because everybody now with the macro economy going on and the ups and downs and the booms and busts, people are looking to raise capital and it's a tough macro economy. Obviously, it's not going to last forever and maybe two or three years before things start, you know, getting back, right. uh, the, 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 get all you know, oiled up again. But my question is, is how do you determine your methodology or criteria to determine what founder you're going to work with and what company or what deal flow you're going to help in regards to, you know, leveraging your Rolodex and, and your network? Sure, sure. No, that's a great question. And I always, whether it's the, um, the legal work or whether it's the cap intro work, I try to identify those clients who, quite frankly, are a good fit. And, and by good fit, I mean, number one, are they above board, meaning do they, do they get what the business is about? Are their hands clean? And are they uh, able to work with you, you know, in a forward moving way? That's kind of the first thing you really want to look for there. And not everyone's at that stage and it's okay. But we, you know, we tend to like clients um, who have been in the business for a while um, and who um, we prefer teams because there's some redundancy there. There's some institutional knowledge, meaning inst like internal knowledge that they can share with each other. And it just presents better to the outside world. I would say on the cap intro side, you know, I typically work with funds who have assets under management somewhere between 50 million and 300 million. And I use it's a rough range, but that's typically in the sweet spot because below 50 million, they, they may not be able to, you know, afford the commissions and the, the, the cash flows that are required to pay a broker. Um, and above 300 million, um, they may already have someone internally to do that or they may not need your assistance. So I'd say, you know, that, that range tends to be a very good spot for working with folks. But to your point, um, emerging managers are finding it harder and harder to attract capital these days. And so part of the screening process is understanding whether this particular client has a strategy or a product 
that that really does something that no one else does, and and a team behind it, and a principle behind it, that can really attract the attention of of skittish investors. Are you stage specific in regards to kind of the founders that you work with, uh, in in regards to your deal flow? Sure, I have found in my experience that um, although very enticing and very energetic, you know, earlier stage like seed stage and founder stage companies really don't have a lot of traction in the marketplace. I, I have colleagues who specialize in that space. They are very good in that space because they have the unique uh, skill set and connections for folks who want that. I typically work with, you know, earlier stage companies that are probably, you know, round B uh, and, and above. I also, and later I should say, and I also work with later stage companies that are pre-IPO who are looking to help investors come in and out of their companies on a kind of a late stage unicorn basis. We call those late stage secondaries. And uh, that, that tends to be where I am on the direct deal side. On the fund side, you know, it's, it's going to be always a question of, you know, does the strategy make sense? And uh, funds, especially hedge funds, have had lagging kind of middling performance, you know, relative to the rest of the S&P. And it's, it's, a, it's a lot harder, uh, quite frankly, it's a lot harder to showcase those fund managers. So what you, you really want to set expectations with your client from the beginning about what the market's capable of. And uh, you, you don't want folks to be disappointed at the end. They, they need to understand these are um, not the best market conditions. Um, your particular alternative asset is not terribly popular right now. Um, you know, typically a range of time to market would be anywhere from six months on the low end to 24 months on the high end. That, those ranges might even be extended these days. So uh, it, it's definitely necessary to communicate with prospects beforehand and give them a full picture of what we think we can do for them so that there's a, there's a good understanding going forward. Do you, uh, when you're looking at, and I appreciate that, you know, so you work with a lot of founders, you know, pre-seed, the Series A probably, nothing in between, and then later stage, which they're already probably, you know, pre-IPO, they're a billion-dollar company, so they obviously got proof of concept, established development team, and so forth, and those are more secondary, so I definitely understand where you're coming from on that. In both of those verticals, do you find that you try to stay in to a specific niche uh, because in that in those specific verticals there's tons of different like deep tech there's generative AI there's you know biotech there's you know all sorts of different strategies and and things like that so um, what where do you gravitate toward because obviously a lot of your investors and the you know connections that you have I would imagine they all have their very specific investment thesis they do they do and, and to that point um, I think one of the um, awakenings, let's call it, that I've had uh, later is that um, in many cases, even though I may work for the company looking for capital, in many cases, it's better to start from the premise of what, what are the investors with whom I have the best relationships looking for and go that route. And so, and then help them find and identify a company that might make sense for them and then, you know, approach that company to work with on, a, on that basis. It's, it's much more targeted and it definitely takes longer. Um, but, you know, it, I, I think the, you're at a greater advantage that way than, you know, um, working with a, an array of companies for whom you don't know whether there is market interest.
No, it makes sense on, on, a, on a, you know, conversion and a sales point. You know, it's like, hey, what do you want? Go find it and I'll give it to you, right? And it's just an easier conversion that way. So that does, definitely does make sense. So in regards to that, um, I know obviously this will change and this answer will probably change depending upon obviously the environment. And, but I'm curious, the heartbeat of where a lot of people are at. I've known a lot of family offices. I know a lot of high net worth individuals and they're all kind of sitting on capital right now just because of the macroeconomy, mm -hmm. the ups and downs. They're just not sure. But there is still, there are still deals being done. Maybe it's just drastically decreased, but there are still deals being done. My my question is, is what are you noticing? Where 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 are you noticing a lot of the deals, the excitement, the fun things? I got a few few topics that that I've noticed, but I'd love to get your perspective. What are you noticing in regards to your rolodex that they're excited for, that they're kind of really you know got head of, you know, top of mind and they're focused on? Sure, sure. It's um it's. I don't want to con consistently sound pessimistic, but you know a lot of venture capital firms and other LPs are are really kind of reserving that powder because of, for for a bunch of reasons. One is, you know, inflation and the and the economic environment and the world, the global macro environment with wars and political instability has pulled a lot of folks back. Um, a lot of folks don't want to have to pay the sunk costs of developing relationships with new companies. They'd rather just take that money and deploy it into existing deals. Um, and so you know. You asked me what deals am I seeing excitement around? Quite frankly, I think folks are, are happy to take um, a single or a double with someone that they know than a triple or a home run with someone that they don't know. I think that's kind of the philosophy these days. Um, but in terms of spaces that are, that are, that are getting talked about, um, energy storage alternatives, you know, I have folks who have asked me about those kind of deals. Um, certain depending on where they're coming from, certain real estate deals, especially if they are more trophy-minded, uh, might capture the attention of, attention of certain audiences who like those deals. Um, I think real estate's always gonna have a, a place for some people in the world. Um, but you know, sitting here in Miami, that's, you know, real estate is king here, and so there's always gonna be a receptive audience for those things. Uh, I, I have not yet, and that's, this is just where I'm sitting, I have not yet heard of a rush for folks getting into AI. Um, they certainly, I have certainly seen deals, but it's not a bonanza at this point. I think folks are still trying to see where the market sorts out in terms of players and, and capacity. Um, cannabis deals, cannabis related deals are um, still being done. Um, I think folks have gotten over their initial skittishness about working with uh, deals that are directly touching the plant, especially as more states come online for medical and recreational use. Um, and the, the ecosystem around uh, that space, you know, delivery, uh, other facilitating industries certainly have deals that are still uh, being into. Um, and just as a side note, um, the, the pet related market, pet supplies, pet technology, um, there's a huge, huge um, opportunity there. And I have seen an increase, an uptick in the number of deals around that, whether it's doggy doors or you know, distribution networks for food, you know, other things that are on a subscription service because they, people, people will pay lots of money to take care of their furry kids. So I think that that's something that's worth highlighting. Now, that is interesting. Just on a side note, I, I've, I'm astounded by how much people spend on their dogs and their pets. Uh, and, and I'm talking insurance, talking toys, talking just subscription things and all sorts of stuff. So there, that is a very, uh, very, competitive market but very interesting mm -hmm. now in regards to 
what you're looking for. I've I've talked to some family offices. I always find it so interesting. Every individual, like I mentioned, like you said as well, the investment thesis is drastically different. Some gravitate more toward funds because they rely on that team or you know their experience in regards to underwriting deals, etc. So they kind of trust that they lean on that or their expertise. Or there's more direct deals, right? And I see a lot of people that are you know very familiar with real estate. They you know have more of a direct deal and syndication and so forth, and take more of a an um, active role in it. What are you noticing? Do you uh, is do you see like a a trend in regards to people going from funds to more direct deals, or vice versa in, in regards to the, the clients and the role decks you have? I don't really see a trend per se. In my experience, investors um, have their set have their preferences more or less defined. They're either solely in one camp or the other, or they want a specific dedicated mix of the two. Um, and so it's, it, I don't see a lot of folks kind of running from one camp to the other. Um, usually, especially the larger family offices and certainly the institutional investors, they have, a, they have a, a portfolio requirement, like a mandate for how much they want to allocate to any particular um, uh, asset class or subset of asset classes. And they may make adjustments to that, you know, on the margins here or there. Um, but there, there's, there's, there are not wide swings between those two. Um, and quite frankly, I would be a little interested if someone was doing that because it would suggest that they, they haven't quite figured out what, what they really want to be in. Those, those are different types of investments and they take a lot of time to scale up and, and, um, and understand. So I, I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't see that really happening. Okay, gotcha. So when, when you're like have a, a client that normally invests into funds, do you maybe share a direct deal and saying, hey, I know your guys' situation, I know what this looks like, I know your goals, uh, almost just an advisor, but not an advisor, but just coming alongside as a friend, being able to say, hey, this may be a good deal that aligns with your thesis, but it's kind of a direct approach more so than a fund, um, and it goes out of their kind of investment thesis. Do you do you ever have that conversation or not really? It's like, hey, this is it. They're very kind of concrete in regards to their their approach and they've been doing it for X amount of years and you just kind of stay with that. You use the right word, which is advisor. Uh, I do see myself in that role. And, and part of that role is sitting down with someone from the beginning, understanding what their needs are, um, not only from a portfolio allocation perspective, but if you're dealing with a family office or a high net worth, there, are may, there may be larger issues um, that they're dealing with um, that need to be addressed, such as you know, su succession issues, uh, younger folks wanting more ESG type opportunities. That's the, that's the time and the moment to talk to them about what all they are interested in now and what they might be open to in the future. Um, and, you know, surprisingly, a lot of folks will say, uh, well, show me what you have. That, there may not be any interest behind it. Uh, I think many of, of investors are opportunistic. They, they won't just, you know, say no to looking at something. But, you know, they get tons of proposals every day. And, you know, you, you don't want to be a burden at the same. So you, if you're going to put something in front of them, you've really got to make sure it matches, you know, what they will do. Um, and um, you've got to find a way to break through the noise. And you've got to be very careful about what you put in front of folks. Yeah, it's, it's, it's because they're so different. It is based on relationships. And uh, like I've got a few family offices, they do not invest in the first or second fund. Mm -hmm. They focus only on third and beyond. Mm -hmm. That just verifies, and it doesn't matter their VC or, or other funds or whatever approach that it is. Uh, that's just kind of one of their rules, which I found very interesting, but I learned that very quickly. So anytime I send a deal. Um, now, I want to talk a little bit about secondaries. Um, I had a friend of mine, 
and you know obviously we're seeing a discrepancy in the price and the valuation of these companies mm -hmm. and some of these you know buyers and sellers right the valuation was a hundred dollars per share maybe you know eight coming on about nine months ago now and now it's kind of coming down to like and i heard one and one person told me it was like thirty dollars a share that's a huge massive discre discrepancy between the buyer and the seller yes and so it used to be a seller's market where you know hey i could price it at this and guess what people are going to be buying that just because it is now it's more of a buyer's market which is always fun right and um, but I'm curious when you're working with these individuals these buyers and sellers right naturally the the, the cost of the share is only twenty six dollars right now right the valuation of the company drastically decreased it's not worth 110 and so naturally there's this negotiation back forth right and how do you navigate that between the buyer and the seller? Definitely in this, this macro economy that has kind of disrupted a little bit in regards to that, that relationship. Yeah, it's, it's tough. Um, most of the secondaries transactions that I've been involved with, there is uh, a buyer's rep and there's a seller's rep and they are not the same person. Um, occasionally I will be both buyer and seller rep, but typically you're working with someone else. And so, that's the first divide that you have to kind of get across that, that someone else is working with them and how does that work? And especially with regard to brokerage commissions. But the other, the other thing you've got to think of, you have to think about is, um, to your point, a lot of the buyer, uh, reluctance, I'd say over the last two years has been about these valuations. And typically what I've seen is both buyer and seller start from really polarized price, uh, price per share points, really polarized. And um, it can be very difficult to move them off of those. Um, and so what, you're what you used to be left with was this huge chasm that couldn't be filled and, and therefore those deals kind of just didn't go anywhere. Um, what I have tried to do is to talk with the person that I'm representing and try to get them to understand uh, that this is just the first salvo is just the first salvo that we can get to a point um, that's helpful, but we have to keep going and we have to keep going quick, quite frankly, because there are that move that market moves fairly quickly. And so I think at the end of the day, it's still a challenge. It's less of a challenge than it used to be. But what you have to do is stay engaged work with the you know the other parties uh broker rep if there is one and try to keep the deal alive as long as you can and um and occasionally you get there yeah so do you find in, in regards to timeline uh, like you mentioned there are some that the discrepancy or the margins are drastically different between the buyer and the seller that nobody wants to move nobody wants to negotiate do you feel like the seller at some point will say okay i see that the valuation has gone down I'm just going to have to take a, a huge haircut on this price, and yeah, it's going to hurt. But at the end of the day, you know, the sellers have to embrace kind of the market um, market equivalent of what's happening. Do you see that happening, or do you think there's going to be just kind of stagnation for now until the the until the market kind of embraces um, the true valuation of these companies? Uh that's hard to say. I mean, I can tell you. you know, I think Prequin put out something earlier that said that you know. Secondaries, uh, in terms of secondaries funds, are actually doing better in the last couple of years than they have since the years after the 2008 crash. Um, we'll see if those trends continue. Um, 
what I have typically seen is when buyers, and this goes back to earlier, you know, the last couple of years, when buyers are supercharged about something, they will pay, they will meet what the seller wants pretty easily. That's usually where you see the closings happens when, when an allocator has to have something uh, and goes after it. What, what I see less of is, you know, where sellers say, okay, you know, you, you twisted my arm and I'm, I'm going to sell it to you. They will usually, they will usually just wait. They will sit on the sidelines and try to get something that closer matches what they want. And that's, that's, that's tough. That's, that's really tough. Yeah, and, and it's very interesting to see kind of what's happening. So I appreciate kind of emphasizing that a little bit. So I want to talk a little bit about more of the founder side of things. Um, you know, obviously a lot of individuals are raising capital. A lot of individuals are sitting there just kind of decreasing their expense, you know, expenses, having a longer runway, you know, expanding that out to like 2025, I've heard, uh, for some of these startups. Um, however, though, at the end of the day, you may or may not need more capital at some point. Um, because of the macro economy, you and I see it. You got you're, you're on track of it quite a bit. Do you feel like right now, because of the macro economy, a lot of things are just kind of on hold in regards to deployment capital and raising capital? And do you feel like at some point you're just going to have to these founders will just have to experience and, and just you know work with what what they have, and then restart the raising capital focus later on or when the time is kind of more more accurate and when do you think that timeline will be i know it's all speculative but i'd love to get your opinion on that <laughs> um i'm i'm just giving you doom and gloom today i'm sorry christian <laughs> I, I i do think founders are in for a a reckoning uh this year and perhaps into next year i i do think uh vcs are deploying less into to new relationships new new companies they're preferring to keep their money and reinvested in existing portfolio deals. Uh, I, I, for the reasons I stated earlier, I think uh, earlier stage companies are just gonna have a tougher time attracting new capital. Uh, and I think with rising interest rates, rising input costs, uh, that's gonna lead to a bit of a washout in a lot of the founders um, out there who are depending on that, depending on uh, fresh money to go to the next round. And so, I, I, I unfortunately, I do think um, that that space is going to get squeezed a, a little bit in the next, you know, six to 12 months. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And I, I definitely see it. So I appreciate that. I want to talk a little bit about you in this business and capital raising and law and, and facilitating these conversations. It really comes down to the one key word of relationships, mm -hmm. right? You are uh, very, very good at this and really keeping those relationships, establishing it and making sure, like you mentioned, optimizing everybody's time in regards to the deal versus the founder and making sure you make the right intros uh, between the, 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 the investor and the founder and vice versa and even obviously your services as a lawyer. What is your secret? What, what do you do on a daily, weekly, monthly basis to keep those relationships live, even though you may not be doing a deal now, but keeping those relationships, that community, that, that, that conversation alive, as well as those, um, just being able to keep those relationships definitely at a micro economy when a lot of people are just sitting on the sideline right now? It's, a, it's an ongoing process. Um, relationships take time. Uh, it starts from a position of, uh, I see you, I see what you're doing. I wanna learn about what's important to you. Um, I wanna learn what your pain points are, especially if you've used a cap intro specialist in the past, what happened, what went wrong? How can I address that? Um, to my earlier point, I think that because I come from a traditionally fiduciary environment as a lawyer, where it's my job to put a client's interest before my own, 
I carry a lot of those same principles over to when I'm working with high net worths and family offices, which is to say, look, I want to make sure that I'm helping you. I'm not here to sell you something. I'm here to understand what your needs are. I'm here to understand what your pain points are. I'm here to understand where you're going to be or where you're trying to be in the next five, 10, 15 years and how can I put products or services in front of you that make the most sense for that. That's how you start the relationship. And then thereafter, it is, you know, it is multiple points of contact, whether they be calls or emails. Um, Miami, as you can imagine, is a very social climate, um, especially now that the uh, pandemic restrictions have gone away. People are out at nightclubs, you know, restaurants, conferences. And because of the great weather down here, you know, people want to be out, they want to be talking and they want to be socializing. And that's how you that's how you stay in touch. The other way to do this is through um, being a thought leader in your space. And, and we all do that to some extent, but whether it's LinkedIn or whether it's articles for industry rags, whether it's speaking on panels, you know, I'm, I'm uh, on the leadership team for the hedge fund association uh, and I work with family offices in that capacity. You know, programming events that matter to the community of folks that you're working with uh, really sets you aside. It lets people know that you're serious about what you do, that you have valuable content for them, and that, you know, quite frankly, that you're still alive. <laughs> so many people have gone underground these last couple of years. Um, so it, it's a combination of all of those things. And, and even still, you know, um, because I have two jobs, uh, you know, it, it can be difficult to find the time to properly allocate to building, you know, client development and business development. But it's something that, you know, I have to make sure I reserve time for to do um, on, on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. Well, you know, what I found interesting is because you have that kind of legal aspect in the law services, that's kind of a good open door or good service. And then obviously on the back end, you can, you know, offer the alternative investing strategy. So that's why I thought it was such a cool bridge. And that's why I wanted to talk about it. Yeah. But do you do other outside, like you just mentioned business development and you know, you and I know family offices get pitched all the time. So it's like, you can't, you know, cold email them or you can't cold call, right? You got to be different. Definitely in today's world where you actually have a lot of content and a lot of availability. A lot of these individuals have social media. They're on social media. They're pushing out their stuff. They have their content, whether it's their company, their managing partner, or whether whoever it is, right? You have some sort of context around who you're targeting. So how do you approach that business development, not in a sales pitch, but like you just mentioned, to build a relationship, to add value, and to ensure that you stand out above everyone else that's obviously like, hey, family office, do you want to write a $2 million check to XYZ? And you don't know who I am, but you don't know who this founder is, but here, I got the best deal in the world, you know, and we see that all the time. So how do you make yourself stand out drastically? Sure, sure. Um, a couple of ways, and this may sound kind of elementary, but I will, I will state it. The fact that I am FINRA licensed goes a long way, um, especially in this part of the world where traditionally a lot of, you know, private alternative asset deals have been done kind of under the table, uh, relying on friends and finders and, and folks who perhaps weren't above board. Um, that's starting to change in Miami with the influx of capital coming from other parts of the country. Uh, the ecosystem down here is rounding out nicely and will continue to grow. And I think that's really started to uh, distinguish what I do from a lot of other traditional finders down here, which is to say, I am FINRA licensed. I, you know, I have a Series 7 and 63, um, so I understand uh, what, it, what it means to uh, market and sell a private placement interest to someone. 
that helps a lot. I think after that, the, you know, the combination of, you know, Princeton undergrad, Harvard Law School, plus years on, on Wall Street, working with institutional and, and mid-market sponsors and clients really shows people like, look, this is not a game. This is not a game. You know, um, I, I hold myself to a higher standard. I know I understand the issues that institutional level investors require in their documents, and I can produce those for you. I think that really distinguishes me quite a bit. After that, it is a matter of, um, again, having multiple co- points of contact with people and giving them little pieces of free freebies that you can. You know, obviously, um, I have to be mindful of how I spend my time and, and what I can do. But for example, I will prepare a, a little bullet point list of top five things you should be thinking about in this market or, you know, um, best tips for selecting legal counsel. If I'm working with someone that I'm not representing on a legal basis, you know, um, trends that I'm trends that I'm seeing in either the legal marketplace or the, the cap intro marketplace. And that's something that can be prepared in an hour or two that can be distribute, distributed and can really show people that you're thinking about things that matter to them um, and that you're, you're trying to put stuff in front of them that's important. The other thing I will say, and I, I mentioned the, the hedge fund association work, you know, I will invite folks to events. Hey, come, come to an HFA event. We're doing a networking event. We're doing an education webinar, or we'd like you to speak on one of those things. You know, put someone from your team, you'll get, you'll get um, visibility and you'll get to be in front of a, a group of folks who, who you might end up wanting to do a deal with. And so I have, you know, I have put together events with that purpose in mind, is to bring together current or potential clients so that they can meet each other and do business. And that, those kind of links and associations are, are very strong once they're established. Yeah, and, and it's so interesting. I went to one, I'm so glad you mentioned this. I went to one investor group and you know, it wasn't that relational aspect. It was very pitch dealy, mm. and that's fine. But it's also don't don't brand it like it's going to be a relational aspect. So that's why I think it's cool to what you just mentioned in regards to just adding value to your ecosystem, your community, your network, in so many different capacities. And because you add that other vertical in regards to legal and law, you have such amount of great services that you can provide outside of the alternative investing space. So, um, which is which is really sweet. When you're when you're looking at those relationships, okay, um, do you mainly focus only on relationships or family offices or high net worth, ultra high net worth individuals here in the United States, uh, or do you gravitate more toward uh, external, you know, in Canada uh, as well as you know we see we're seeing a lot pop out of you know Saudi Arabia as well as Middle East and Asia and you know Europe and so forth. There's a lot of family offices, not as many. I was looking, not as many as here in the United States, but there are still plentiful, uh, plenty amount of of in the Europe and Middle East and Asia and obviously we're seeing a lot of wealth generate and and being deployed here in the United States, vice versa as well. So what are you noticing in regards to when you're really targeting? I know you mentioned Miami quite a bit. Maybe you stay in that small ecosystem because everything's coming to you. Maybe that just kind of works out in regards to the way it works out. I um, love talking with family offices from anywhere. And I think as a just a relational relationship, rather, perspective, uh, having a wide base of folks to exchange best practices with to, to expand your network, that's always fantastic. Um, I, I, you know, I think because of 
how the regulations work with regard to where you know where I am licensed to you know solicit. Um, you have to be very careful, and so the securities laws allow me to work exclusively in the U.S. without much difficulty. Um, trying to place uh, private placements in outside jurisdictions like Europe or other places is a it's a different regulatory environment, and and therefore those aren't always going to be easy or even possible. Uh, luckily and thankfully, the U.S. has a very robust in, uh, family office market. Um, because of my time in the New York area, I have relationships there, down here in Miami, of course, um, a few in the Bay Area as well, and Southern California. So I, I do kind of stay in those major markets. I, I will say um, through the HFA and the work that I'm doing with the family office subcommittee there, we are expanding our reach into the Canadian family office market. And I have a colleague there who uh, who has really opened my eyes to the possibility of networking with that part of the world and realizing that uh, they don't always get the attention up in Canada that they should. Um, but there, there is a great market of really um, talented uh, family office leaders and nice people, as Canadians often are, are, are seen as nice, very nice people to work with. So I'm, I'm excited about expanding my reach into that part of the world. That's so cool. And yeah, I, I got one individual. She's a single family office. Uh, she works mainly with female founders. Uh, just real neat. But it was interesting. You sometimes think a lot of family offices get pitched all the time, but some of them don't have the right deal flow. And really creating a funnel and attribution or acquisition channel for a lot of deal flow for that specific thing. Yeah. So in Canada, they don't. And they obviously want to deploy capital. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, you, I want to. You mentioned something a while back, and I want to kind of un, unpack that a little bit further in regards to actual the deal structure. Mm. Um, I've had some individuals like capital raisers where you know obviously you have the deep relationships. You introduce them to the founder. How involved are you in regards to knowing the founders? Maybe like fund, knowing their their thesis, knowing everything, so you can pitch it to your rolodex a little easier and underwrite that a little bit not saying that you do 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 the underwriting but maybe your family office still has to do the underwriting etc how active or what role do you play in it sounds like you take a very active role in it in regards to communication and navigation and getting people lined up but um how, how do you what is your approach to the actual you know micro aspect of the deal and negotiations and what that looks like sure well i'm responsible um when i take on a mandate from uh, either a fund or a, a deal sponsor to understand that deal um, on its face and from multiple angles so that I can present that deal in the best way to the family office or the other investor. And so I, that's where my legal training comes in really handy because I can digest the transactional aspects very well, especially if it's a fund. Um, but then it also helps me because I'm able to communicate and distill stuff to the essence of what it needs to be so that I can make a very effective and quick pitch for folks. And so it's my responsibility to know the sponsor and know the deal so that I can you know, convince my supervising broker dealer that yes, this is worth putting on your platform. And then I need to be able to present that not only to the investors, but I also need to present it to my colleagues at the broker dealer. I mean, I'm, I'm blessed to work at a broker dealer where we have a number of reps just like me who are pursuing their own deals, but who are very willing and able to collaborate on the deals that I bring. So if, uh, and that just increases the Rolodex uh, that's available for any particular deal. 
And so it's important that I be able to talk intelligently about that deal. Um, and not just, again, not just on its face, but there might be multiple audiences for this deal. This could be a straight um, opportunistic play. This could have elements in, in like a lot of real estate deals do of a cash flow, um, kind of like a dividend cash flow. If you look at it, um, it could be um, an ESG play that's that's masquerading as a regular private equity deal. Um, and so being able to tell the story of a particular deal in multiple ways and multiple angles just increases the, the audiences that are available for that particular deal. And so uh, for those reasons, it's really important that I try to understand a deal as best as I can and um, be able to communicate that succinctly and powerfully to the family offices and high net worths that I talk to. So it's it's all cool approach. So correct me if I'm wrong. Kind of what you do is you reach out to your you know your your rolodex of individuals that are looking to deploy capital, and you say, hey, what do you what are you looking for? Oh, cool. You're looking for you know ESG impact investing specifically in the industrial space. Cool, wonderful. Let's go ahead and gravitate toward that. You find some deal flow that aligns with their thesis. And then you come over here and unpack that slide deck, that investment, whatever it is, and then depending upon that context of hey, are they more analytical? Are they more kind of higher bigger picture? Are they more dreamers? Or is it more of like the story? itself or the founder you're able to navigate kind of the really the pitch deck to align with that whatever that is so if they're looking for analytics if they're looking for kpis if they're looking for more of just kind of that like i just mentioned the bigger broader picture you're able to kind of sell that too and say hey this is the reason why i'm bringing this over to you you know mr james high net worth individual because guess what you were looking for this i've got this guy that's looking for x amount of money and you guys would be a really uh, synergistic relationship uh, correct me if i'm wrong but that's kind of you're very very micro and very uh, intentional with your approach, with your navigation of the deal and making sure that it obviously, you know, converts. Is that correct? Well, I, I might adjust that slightly. I, I mean, the reality is, is sometimes people don't know what they want until they see it. That's, that's all. <laughs> it's also a very true thing. And so while an investor may say, I want X, Y, and Z in this deal. Okay. Well, the reality is, is most deals won't always have exactly everything that they're looking for. And so what you want to, obviously you want, you know, when you're playing any kind of matchmaker, you want to try and get as many of the traits in common as you can, but there are going to be things that vary from what they want. And you, that's when you decide whether that's worth putting in front of them or, or not. And, um, you know, we are salespeople at the end of the day. So we do want to uh, put things in front of the investor that they may not have thought of before that, that they might want to continue. And sometimes it's because there is something in the deal that something else in the deal that is worth pursuing, even though they're not getting everything on their list. For example, they may want to participate in a deal that's not typically what they do because they might get transparency rights into underlying portfolio deals, which they can pursue later on. There could be some other kind of strategic relationship that's really important to them. It could be because they want to be seen in a certain space uh, because of dictates coming down from their, their leadership team or from the regulators. And so they are willing to kind of step outside of their comfort zone a little bit. So it, it is good to put non-standard deals in front of people from time to time, but there has to be a reason for that. There has to be a justification. And you gotta be okay when they say no. And sometimes that no means no, but come back in six months and maybe things will be different. So it's, it's, you just gotta keep going. 
it's just marketing, you know, it's, it's at the right time at the right thing at the right moment. Right. right. You know? And so I definitely understand on that. And, uh, when I was curious a little bit in regards to like the relationships, I, I want to give our audience a little bit of like the timeline mm. because, you know, even in during, you know, when everybody was, it was easy to raise capital just a few years ago and that whole, you know, bullish market, um, and the bridge and everybody was able to raise capital and scale to a billion dollar, you know, unicorn and so forth. Now, obviously, the, the landscape has changed. It may be like that for a little while, but it doesn't mean that it's impossible. And you said it's obviously coming down to relationships. And I probably, you probably, correct me if I'm wrong, some of these individuals, when you bring up a deal, they'll probably say no to probably maybe 90% of them and maybe one, and then take one of those down the, down the pipeline for maybe three months, do the underwriting, and then they still say yes or no at the end of the day. Correct. Just give us a little bit of kind of the timeline for our audience, for those that, you know, one, they want to get into it, or two, they obviously have, you know, being able to facilitate that. Because um, I, I just think it's really good for, for our audience and myself to understand how that looks like um, and, and, and the timeline of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think what you're saying is right. I, I think one of the best pieces of advice I ever got from a, f a former colleague was, you know, with respect to his particular raise that I was helping on, he said, look, let's get to a yes or no very quickly. You know, explain the deal very well. You know, be, be you know, assertive about why you think it's right for them. But um, let's not spend a lot of time convincing them why they should be in it if, they, if they're not ready for it. Okay, so because we have a lot of folks to talk to. And um, as I said earlier, it may not be a right fit now, but perhaps later. But let's get to that decision, that up or down as quickly as we can. That's kind of like the first timeline is, is getting to that. And then if there are like a maybe or maybe yes kind of space, um, then what you're really looking at is um, I, I try to ask them, okay, well, what does your review process look like? You know, who's on the committee, the internal review committee, and when do you meet? How long does that take? And people are all over the place. It depends on how they're structured. And so for some people who are nimble, it could be, oh, we meet every week and we can look at this next week. For some other people who are more institutional, it might be, well, the initial, we'll have an initial team review it you know, now, and if they feel free, they'll, they'll pump it up to the, to the boss who then has to send it to the investment committee. And at, the, at that point, you're looking at, okay, this might be next month before we, we can say yes or no. And so it really does depend on how your investor is in, you know, internally reviewing things. And to your point, for every 10 deals that make it through the first cut, you know, one or two might make it through the next cut, and only one may make it to the cut after that. And so... Um, I, I think it really does behoove all of us to set realistic expectations with our clients and say, look, um, it's a bit of a black box. I will try to try and get um, updates as I can. Um, and, I, you know, let's get you a meeting. If nothing else, get you a meeting with them, someone so that they can see you, you know, as a real person and you can articulate um, exactly what you're trying to do and how, how this product or this fund works. And let's see what we can do. But I, I think realistically for funds, you know, you're looking at an uh, 18, 24 month cycle to, to get a closing. Uh, and, on a, and on a VC deal, um, you're probably looking at something like, um, if not that long, probably, you know, nine, nine or 12 months, perhaps, you know, these rounds are being done every, what, year and a half at this point. So, you know, you might, you might be looking at something like six, six to nine to 12 months for, for that kind of a, a closing. So it's, uh, it, it's, it's not easy. It's not easy. But I, I, think, I think increasingly investors understand that. They're not naive. I think, uh, excuse me, I, I think clients, the, the issuers understand that. They're not naive and they're not, 
they're not thinking that this is going to be um, something that's wrapped up in a couple of months. It's going to take time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I had one individual. I mean, they, it almost took them, I think, 15 months. Uh, it was a startup to just to you know bring up um, about a million dollars. And at some point, they just had to do a crowdsourcing for you know just accredited investors for individuals that were like, hey, let's you know spend twenty thousand, thirty thousand, just be able to get that number. So it is a very interesting market, and you got to you know like you mentioned, just got to go through the numbers. Um, I think you know Jeff Bezos talks about how he talked to almost like three hundred, four hundred individuals in regards to the VC space just to raise capital. So I appreciate that. You did mention something, and uh, before I let you go uh, and close up here, I want to ask you about this because a lot of multifamily offices and they're very institutional in their approach in regards to, hey, you know what, you maybe have a managing partner, you may have a chief investment officer, but they may be the face of the company that you you might have underneath them a review team, a review board, an investment team that kind of actually filters the, the fund itself. I'm curious, Jamel, how do you approach that? How involved are you in regards to, hey, you know, yeah, I'm talking to CIO, but I also want to pitch it to the investment team, right? Because it is a sales, right? You got to explain it to them a little bit and how this could be a synergistic relationship between the, the multifamily office uh, or, you know, that high net worth individual or vice versa, whatever it is. Um, how do you try to kind of integrate yourself into their institutional process? And institutional, they do it for a reason, and I definitely understand to mitigate their risk and so forth and et cetera, et cetera. So I definitely understand. But you do have to learn how to navigate those institutional kind of investment criteria. That is a very difficult thing to do if there's no pre-existing relationship with, with, the, yeah. with the institution. They are structured that way, as you say, for a reason, and they can be labyrinthine and very hard to penetrate, to be very honest. Uh, I have found that in, when I'm talking with larger family offices, multifamily offices, or institutions, um, I'm a bit at their mercy in terms of how to get in on the ground floor, unless, unless I know someone there. And so when I do talk to those sized firms, I try to have a relationship one way or the other, whether it's, you know, I, this is someone I went to law school or college with who's now ascended up the ranks and is now in a position to help me get into the organization, or I will find someone who I know who does and work that first degree relationship to get, to get there. Um, and that usually means, and even, even then, that can usually mean, okay, well, um, you, may not, you may not be able to pitch directly to the CIO, at this time, but uh, his his or her number two is available. His or her number two will look at it and uh, and and then opine. And as you know, I mean, look, the name of the game is no, no one in these institutions wants to put forth a bad deal. They're trying to make their way up the ladder as well, and they they can't be seen to be forwarding up you know uh, stinkers up to their bosses. It's just not going to be a good look. So um, there's not always an incentive to to uh, be liberal, so to speak, on these deals. There's an incentive to be very conservative on these deals, actually. Um, so, but, but again, like having pre-existing relationships either directly or one degree removed really can help me kind of target, okay, here's the CIO. Uh, he and I went to college together or, you know, she, she lives down the street in Coral Gables. You know, let's try that way. And if not, then let me speak to his or her number two and talk to that person and figure out what the number one person is really caring about these days whether it's returns, whether it's downside risk or allocation within their whole portfolio, you know, reputational risk, mandates from head office, whatever, whatever it is, let me figure out what the number one person really cares the most about and try to angle my pitch accordingly. 
Such good insight, man. Jamil, I, I really appreciate you unpacking that because I was talking literally just maybe a week ago, a multifamily office. And I just sent him something. I said, hey, you know, I know we know each other, but, you know, I want you to just, you know, look at this. And he says, well, we don't actually take outside of things. And I don't circumvent my, you know, investment team. And we actually, you know, uh, establish a really good relationship with another organization that actually gives us deals, specific deals that we're looking for. So they already had a very well-established thing. I said, hey, no worries. Cool. Awesome. And I, I just wanted to ask that on a personal basis, but I think it's also very good for founders or for all sorts of individuals that are looking to raise capital, um, regards of, regardless of what vertical, and really how to navigate that. Is it worth the time? Is it not? I do know that those individuals can write bigger checks, institutions, so you got to just play their game, like you said, at their mercy. Uh, so um, Jamil, oh, man, I appreciate this conversation today. This has been a lot of fun. And before I let you go, I want to ask you, you know, uh, first of all, how can they reach out to you? For those that are like listening to our podcast that are like, hey, we're looking to raise that next level. We got some secondaries. I'm looking to sell. Whatever it is, right? Whatever the case is, how do they reach out to you? How, they, how do they have that conversation? Who are you looking for? Making sure that you're optimizing their time and your time. Sure, sure. Uh, I, like most professionals, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, and so that's always the best place to find me. I have a description of both sides of my businesses. And you can see from the resume what I've done. Um, I would also say um, you can reach me at archinvestmentsgroup.com. That's A-R-C-H-E, investments, plural, group.com. It's a website that services my cap intro businesses. And you can find more information about the services that I do, and there's a bio on me as well. Uh, and so uh, uh, Stonehaven Group, which is a supervising broker-dealer for Arch, has a profile on me there. You can reach me at stonehaven-llc.com. And then Fisher Broyles LLP, the law firm where I work, also has a bio on my services and my, my resume there. And that's fisherbroyles.com. So uh, I encourage everyone, get in touch. Let's have a conversation, whether your legal or cap intro needs are now or down the road. It's always important to talk about what's important to you so that we can figure out how to be of service to folks uh, who are looking to you know, start or fund cap intro investments. Awesome. And guys, just to make it easy, all those links that he just mentioned, I'll put them down in the description. You just click on it, open that up, be able to have that conversation, network with him. Uh, he's very um, you know, active on LinkedIn and then also on his website as well. There's a uh, contact information there. So make it easy for you guys. Just be able to reach out and connect. I uh, highly would recommend it. Even having that conversation, like Jamil said, if it's six months or eight months, you got to kind of you know, uh, skate to where the puck is going. Have those conversations now. Have that dialogue now and start that journey before you actually start the whole campaign. So, um, Jamil, I really appreciate you being on here. I always love to ask my guests before I let you go fully. One last question, and it's more personal. So if you can visualize and imagine your young self, okay, and what insecurities did you have to overcome to become the successful Jamil French you are currently? Wow. I, I didn't know, Christian, it was going to become an analyst session. But, uh, look, I think um, growing up where I did um, – I didn't see a lot of people who looked like me who were doing the kind of things that I wanted to do. And so for, I would say, most of my childhood years up until about the age of 16, I hadn't really thought much about how I could be something different than what I was. Um, I had the great fortune of doing a seven-week intensive homestay in France between junior year and senior year in high school. And it was my first time traveling abroad, and it really opened my mind to the world of things that are possible things that I didn't see for myself before then. And when I came back from that homestay, it really changed everything. And it led to me applying to Ivy League schools. Um, that was a new one for my, fa my family. 
and it also just really set me on a path of thinking about things that are outside of my comfort zone but that could take me in new directions and so if anything i would tell myself look um, if you want to get to that next place you might have to do some things that are outside your comfort zone you might have to stretch yourself in different ways so that you can be the best person that you can be not only for yourself but for the people that you care about um, in your life and so by all means all of us need to get a little uncomfortable do things that we're not used to stretch ourselves so that we can be of better service to everyone else well said man well said guys that is incredible wisdom from my friend the ceo of arch investments the one and only jameel french <laughs> guys that a journey with christian Diaz podcast until next time be uncommon if you can thanks so much